everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 6, issue 278. It's Joust. You can play along with us at Cane and Rinse. We have our entire schedule up to and including the end of the year, and that's issue 300 of the podcast. Find that all at caneandrinse.com. Uh, but for those of you looking to play along with us in the next month or thereabouts, the next five games we'll be covering include Legacy of Cane Soul Reaver, after that, it's Until Dawn, a recent PlayStation Plus addition to many of your libraries. Then it's Super Hexagon. After that, it's Super Mario Kart, just the first Super Mario Kart. And then we return to the Witcher series with the second of the trilogy, The Witcher 2 Assassins of Kings. You can also find articles, features, reviews and links to our friendly, busy, intelligent forum, our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. And you can support us if you enjoy all this stuff that we provide. We have a Patreon, uh, nothing behind paywalls, but if you feel that the hours of podcasting that we uh, put your way every month are worth something, you can pay the minimum of a dollar, which is uh, currently around 80 pence or thereabouts. Uh, and that goes towards supporting the many, many hours that we put into producing the many, many hours that uh, we put out, as it were. Um, you can also... Uh, buy t-shirts and bags at shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash cane and rinse you can also please check out our video games music podcast sound of play and uh, we are over 100 now into those please review rate subscribe both of those on itunes pocketcast stitcher tune in or wherever else you get your podcast from and we thank you for it now joining me, Leon Shadow Lord Cox in issue 278 are Mikiel Hunter Croder. Hey, hi. And Dan Bounder Clark. Hello. Have you been called a bounder before? I've been called a cadder bounder, all sorts. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. Uh, welcome back, gentlemen. It is us, the the team of, the, of three who deal with the oldest games uh, in in. Uh, in the Cana Rinse archives. Uh, so this is Joust from July 16th, 1982. It is at the day of recording, July 17th, 2017. So the game is 35 years and one day old. It was made by Williams Electronics and the designer uh, was the appropriately named for his first game, but only his first game, John Newcomer. Uh, he went on to be instrumental in the creation of games such as Sinistar, uh, the one with the terrifying sampled speech, uh, NBA Jam, uh, Revolution X, which is the one with Aerosmith, I think. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and, I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and also uh, Narc, the uh, uber-violent side-scroller. Uh, so this came on a machine, uh, an arcade machine at first. Uh, of course, it was 96K's worth of ROM, a, a horizontal raster standard 19-inch monitor, 292 by 240 pixels. Uh, they sh ended up shipping 26,000 units, which was a lot. Uh, and of those, around 250 to 500 were the uh, the quite rare now and, and valuable sit-down cocktail cabinets so uh what is joust a lot of you probably won't be familiar with joust although it is uh, it is just about available on contemporary formats if you know where to look um it is a game in which you fly about on an ostrich yeah uh you and uh, poss possibly another player it's a single screen game where uh, you clear screens by jousting that is actually bumping them off with your 
uh, bird's bottom most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, hopefully more will become clear. But yes, it's a single screen game uh, where you clear out the enemies uh, and move on to the next screen. And it very quickly gets very hard. So yeah, it's one of those games that's not easily definable by a handy, handy genre template, right? That's a that's also a good point. Yes, it's it's something. It's a game that you would only see developed as an independent, uh, low budget curio these days. Whereas back in 1982 you could come up with an idea like this and it would be put into tens of thousands of coin-op cabinets yeah. and converted to home formats, even though it's a bit of a weird one. And, yeah. it, and it remains a weird one. Um, we'll talk about the legacy later, but actually it didn't go on really to spawn like its own genre or anything in in, in a sense. Not really, yeah, but uh, I, I definitely think there is a, a sort of a, a niche subgenre that it definitely com- contributed to or sown, yes. has sown the seeds for, but we'll talk about that later, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Dan? Yeah, I, th- I think it's easy, well, easy to describe, but it's easier to describe using games that came after it. But that's obviously not yes. a good way to, to describe how it would have been taken and received at the time. So, yeah, well, I, that, I think there's probably yeah. more influences than some may think of. But, um, yeah, as Miguel says, we get to that in the short. We will get on to that. Um, and the one that maybe perhaps people will be most familiar with, because it has been re-released a lot of times uh, and the company who made it are obviously uh, you know, still very active in promoting their legacy uh, titles, it would be Balloon Fight. Mm. Um, but there's more to the relationship between Joust and Balloon Fight than just the fact that it's a, a copy, as we'll find out later. So uh, Newcomer's initial vision of Joust was a flying game with co-op two-player gameplay. Uh, he felt that rather than emulating the popular science, science fiction type themes of uh, previous successful flying games um, such as Asteroids and of course William's own Defender he wanted to offer an alternative so he made a list of things that could fly including machines animals and fictional characters and after evaluating the pros and cons of these he ended up with birds big birds uh, actually birds that are semi-flightless if not flightless in the real world Mm -hmm. Um, believing uh, that they would have a wide appeal as well so we ended up with an ostrich and a stork effectively with vultures as the enemies Um, but it's a kind of if you look at the art and we're going to talk about that that surrounds the game there's a whole kind of weird um, sci-fi knights uh, theme which yeah I mean it's all it's genuinely the, the more you think about it like it's something that I'm used to because I've lived with it since 1982 uh, I guess, or thereabouts. Um, but the more you think about it, the kind of weirder, the weirder it gets. Yeah. Uh, uh, the probably the most important elements, and obviously we'll talk about these um, in when we when we go into the gameplay. But something that perhaps hadn't been used so much in games up to this point was actual physics, including inertia and gravity. These were these are two absolutely key elements to the Joust experience. Um, Maybe that, maybe the yeah. most um, famous example of the use of inertia and gravity would be games like Gravatar, right? Yeah, yeah, Lunar Lander, maybe I can't remember. Yeah, asteroids to an extent had that's sort true. Of momentum yeah. of inertia. That's true. And uh, if you say we, asteroids, yeah. you have to say the uh, the very first uh, actual video game, Space War, as well. 
Yep. Yes, yes, this is true. So actually, there, yeah, there is a lot of precedent. But I suppose I'm thinking in terms of the, the games that were around at the time, also the other Williams games like Defender. I mean, mm. even that has inertia in it. But And I suppose it does have gravity to a point as well in that things fall back to Earth. So now I'm thinking about it. Um, but it feels to me like somehow the, the eggs like bouncing around in Joust and the fact that you're constantly fighting gravity makes it something slightly different. Right. With every flap of your wing, you're you're uh, fighting against gravity. Yeah. 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 Totally. Uh, and to play these uh, high score marathons that people do, you are you are doing this for literally days on end, <laughs> which is <laughs> mind boggling. Uh, John Newcomer said, at the time Joust was done, I was hoping to get a broader audience who may want to try a different skill. There were already plenty of shooting games they could play. I wanted to break some new ground. I felt like I was already giving the player new things to do, like having to do flap, run, and become so adept at flying that it would be the determining factor in how you collided and defeated an enemy the cleanest thing i could think of visually uh, to visually determine a winner was height uh, yes and this game does only have three controls left right and flap it doesn't have an eight-way joystick it doesn't have a secondary button uh, other than the start button uh, that's it it's all controlled by running left and right or pointing left and right and flapping um, so before we talk about our personal histories with the game uh, I wanted to talk a little about cabinet art well actually let's tie it in so one of the things that perhaps we don't get to talk about as much and it as we've also spoken before, because coin-ops often used to get put into generic cabs by distributors, we didn't always used to get to see this art. But actually, my very early memories of Joust at the arcades are not about playing it because I was confused and intimidated by it. It's seeing that astonishing Williams art on the side of the cabinets. These, you know, these mighty um, mounted ostriches and these knights atop with lance and this very kind of um, bold uh, yellow and red logo and various other bits of art dotted around the cabinet. And I can, you know, I totally understand why these are collectible works of art um, nowadays. Uh, and, it, and it's also, I think, something in the fact that <clears throat> while we were wowed by the graphics back in 1982 of, of games like this, you know, they look very simple and low res now, the cabinet played a part in attracting people. That's why they had all this amazing stuff on, because mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the, the creators couldn't necessarily rely on the in-game graphics to, uh, to drag people in. Although, as I say, the novelty of simply having interactive something on a screen was was extraordinary back in the late 70s early 80s but yeah. but these these uh these bezels and marquees and uh and control panels are yeah they they are you know lusted over by collectors uh, the world over and i think it's worth sometimes just uh, taking time out to think about and appreciate that there's almost a mural like quality to the uh, the huge ostrich on the side it's um, it's quite striking the sheer just size of it isn't it absolutely yeah yeah uh and i mean there's nothing like from my point of view seeing some of these sort of classic vintage arcades that still exist in america with a lot of these classic you know vintage coin ops from the era all lined up with their original art uh, either either uh, either they've been you know kept and and um, preserved in beautiful condition or there's a huge uh, scene around recreating uh, you can download scans of this art and uh, using um, like laser etching techniques I think so I'm, I'm not an artist this is one of the things that's put me off of, of being a coin-op collector apart from space and money is the the fact that you need to know all these kind of techniques and and uh, as well as some electronics you also need to know about how to kind of you know recreate 
create these marquees and stuff to replace the ones that are faded and melted and covered in cigarette burns and all that kind of thing. So is this something that uh, that, that speaks to you guys? I think all of these Williams cabinets at the time were striking. They all had their uh, sort of a cohesive look to, I don't know what it is about them. Maybe it's just the, the color schemes they used or something, but you could tell when a machine was a Williams machine, they really did stand out from the others. And that goes right away through to things like Smash TV as, as things progressed. I can always sort of picture Williams machines in my mind, whereas others, even if they weren't in your generic Euro coin or whatever cabinets, yeah. um, they never had quite the same impact as knowing that this was the new Williams machine or, the, or there was a bank of a few Williams machines. And it just sort of uh, almost um, an intimidating, I suppose, to their competitors, like lineup of games, just the sheer sort of yeah. look and feel of it. Yeah, absolutely. I also vividly remember the cabinet art for Qbert, uh, which was by Gottlieb. Yeah, that had a lot of very striking cabinet art as well with the character and his uh, strange curse words and everything. Yeah, fortunately, there are now uh, there are books and collections and obviously online resources uh, documenting and, and keeping all this stuff for in perpetuity so well you know, at least until everything is everything is dust uh, i always like to bring an apocalyptic uh, <laughs> note to uh, proceedings just to remind us how futile everything is anyway so your history with joust uh mine was simply that i vaguely remember seeing it a few times in arcades as, as a, a i mean it, i was 10 when it came out i saw you know i did go down the arcades and see arcade machines at that point but i wasn't a regular in arcades in the you know that in the way that I would be when I was a little bit older. Um, I don't think this necessarily had the same level of penetration in Europe as it did, or in the UK at least, as it did in America. Um, I think it, its nature of being slightly uh, out there, slightly quirky, meant that it perhaps didn't sort of um, catch on in the same way that some of the, either the cutesier stuff or the more uh, un instantly understandable sci-fi stuff did. And I think the reason I was put off playing it was just remember struggling with the controls, the flapping, and also the concept of the jousting itself, not really realising that it was about kind of bottom bouncing things and trying to arrange it so that my lance was mm. like one pixel above the other birds' lances just seemed really, really like impossible to manage. So I, I was I was hugely put off. I ended up buying it later on, as with Robotron that we covered a, a month or however long ago it was. I ended up buying the Atari 8-bit cartridge conversion for my Atari 8-bit computer because this was a reliable. Uh, source of games you could just jam the cartridge into the machine and and be playing straight away which was always great which one of the three was it that you had it was this i had the atari 800 xl um and yeah there were three different versions for atari 8 bits uh and the one i had was the one that's considered to be the the kind of the the most accurate and playable version uh, and I played it a lot from I guess I got it in about 1986 or 87 so it was already you know a vintage game at that point by those standards but I ended up playing it uh, solo and in sort of co-op stroke verses which is something we'll talk about later with friends for at least the next three or four years until my Amiga kind of supplanted my Atari 8-bit so uh, the thing about that version is that it was slower and there was a lot more screen space to play with because the sprites were smaller. So it was it was less hectic and even the uh, the Shadow Lords weren't quite as um, as pacey as they are in the arcade version. So I got kind of uh, complacent when it came to playing the, I guess the next version I had was the Williams Arcade Classics version on PS1. So that was mid-90s. Uh, and I've had various 
Williams collection version since then. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I go through periods of playing it quite a bit. Um, and yeah, most recently, I guess for the last 10 years now, yeah, I've been since 2006, I've been playing the Xbox Live Arcade version as with Robotron. Um, it's no longer available to download, but you can get it as part of the Williams no, Midway Arcade Origins collection which is backwards compatible and also has Joust 2, which we'll talk a little bit about later on. So, yeah, I've been playing this on and off uh, for about 30 years or so in one form or another. Dan, how about you? Um, it's one of the first games I remember. Um, I can't, I really? couldn't ever figure out exactly where or when. It's one of those things that's always been there. I would have been five when it released, and I think that would have been the sort of first age where I would have ever set foot in an arcade. Now, I can't remember if I would have been quite that young, because I can't remember if it's the Atari 2600 version or the arcade version that I remember and played first. Mm. But I remember we used to rent the, the VCS cartridge from the local video okay. shop. Right. Um, never owned it myself, but I remember either renting it or borrowing it from friends. I remember it being one of those games that sort of floated in and out. But the arcade version, it's funny that you mentioned that it might not have done as well in Europe because my um, my prevailing memory of it is is in the States in one of those um, right. sort of blacked out dark arcades where yes. all the lights and the sounds are going. And um, it was the first time I played it two-player. There was a kid about my age, I suppose I would have been maybe seven or eight at this time, uh, walked up and said, do you mind if I play alongside? And I'd never played it before, um, but he just kept killing me. So um, <laughs> that's oh, my no. main memory of the arcade version. Trolling. Yeah, it's just one of those, oh, yeah, exactly, early trolling. Love a trolling. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it's one of those things that's just always been there. I can't, ever, I can't put a finger on when I first would have seen it. It's just yeah. one of my earliest gaming memories. Did you have the Lynx version? Was there a Lynx version? There, uh, there Lynx is a Lynx version. version. I've only um, played it a few times in the in the years since. I never had it at the time. I think with a lot of those arcade conversions on the Lynx, as mm. it was sort of 30 quid for a game, it always felt like there were these sort of yeah. like larger experiences that you could get for the same price. Yes. Or if I could have, could have got Road Blasters for the same price, then I felt at the time that it was um, yeah. better value as such yes. to, to get that. I did play the Spectrum uh, unofficial version, though. Ah, yes. I think it was on yes. one of those tapes that a, a friend at school made, which um, I think it got renamed from Joust to Ostron. Oh, Ostron. Okay. Well, we've got some other names like that coming up later, uh, just for fun. So, yeah, cool. Ostron was what wasn't one I picked up on. Yeah, it's obviously uh, has appeared yeah on on various other formats. And um, yeah, the, it, basically, if you played it at home in the last uh, on a on a format from the last twenty years, it would simply be an emulation. But prior to that, there were ports. We'll talk more about those later. Um, so, Mikhail, what's your history? with joust yeah i I can't really recall having any memory wise related to joust of uh dating back to the uh early 80s but the strange thing is that it was one of those names that kept being mentioned by by any gaming enthusiast so it somehow had made seeped seeped into my my consciousness Uh, but Mm. yeah i've never uh back in the days i've never seen a machine in the wild i might have laid my first eyes on screenshots of joust in either superplay or nintendo magazine systems uh system when they started doing those compilation on 16-bit cartridges yeah yeah people were kind of lukewarm on them usually and me also on my uh, i wasn't really looking to play early uh, 80s arcade games on my uh, spiffy 16-bit 16-bit system uh, which is Mm. interesting when you think about it because 
that's something I definitely started searching out later on much more powerful yeah. systems. So, uh, I completely agree. I had exactly the same feeling, even though I was already somebody who you know considered myself interested in the history of the medium. Yeah. It was the thought of play, of playing inferior ports. I think was the thing. So for like the the Super Nintendo version of Joust is not a great conversion. The Mega Drive version is much better for whatever reason. Different team. Yeah. But I had uh, it, it took until the PS One era when I knew that the games were. M- Emulated and they they were therefore that much closer to the arcades before I really got into playing conversions of, of classic um, classic coin ops. So although having said that, that's making a liar of me saying that I played the eight bit. So there was yeah, it was like that that there was that era. So you wanted to play the conversions at the eight bit time even if they were inferior because it was just about having them at home and then you wanted to play them later when there was more nostalgia involved and they were more accurate conversions but in that mid period in the 16-bit era uh, you and I for instance weren't that interested because you were getting a kind of uh, a a watered down experience that didn't offer you know the the best of either thing maybe is that yeah it's not not just that it's also i was really getting uh excited about the arcade games at the time you know super street fighter 2 or street fighter 2 coming to the super nintendo uh, all sorts of uh, side-scrolling beat-em-ups uh yeah cool uh side-scrolling platformers with multi-parallax scrolling backgrounds and uh, vivid colors and yeah yeah just black screens with little tiny creatures on it uh, didn't really excite me at the at the time and also the pricing was an issue as dan said because you would buy a williams collection cartridge for a 16-bit machine and it would be like 50 quid or you know 40 to yeah whatever pounds and you would get maybe four uh, four classic games on air that would be, you know, close-ish in some cases to to conversion. But it took until um, CD, you know, optical formats and downloadable yeah. formats before they could start selling these at a kind of reduced retro price sort of yeah. thing. So. And it was only after the, the millennium where I started to have more of a historical archive-like uh, interest yeah. in, uh, in video games and uh, wanted to have direct access to a lot of uh, classic games of the past. Yeah, so have you played it much uh, in modern times then? Not that much uh, either. Uh, I mean, I, I played it on the same compilation I played uh, I played Robotron on, the yeah. Midway Arcade Treasures Volume 1 on the yes. original Xbox. Early 2000s. Uh, and yeah, I mean, on, the, on that compilation, the likes of Defender, Robotron and uh, Smash TV are just really nice and accessible and really comfort food for me to to get into yeah. and just is something i enjoy when i play it but it's not a game of that mold where it just has a, a very strong pull on me i mean to a degree mm-hmm. uh, when i play it i do get into it but not quite to that degree yeah i would go along with that um it's yeah the the kind of the more i've been back to it these last few weeks in preparation for the podcast, the more hooked I've found that I've got onto it again, and I've found it very, very much uh, one more goish at points. Thinking one of those games where you think I really shouldn't have lost that particular life at that particular yeah. point, and that set me up for a bad game. So I'm going to go back and and do that, do that again, kind of thing. Definitely true. We'll, yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah. we'll talk more about the uh, the specifics of the gameplay, but I want to talk about the actual uh, the graphics now. How this game looks, uh, we've already described a, a black backdrop, which is true unless you play the Xbox 360 version with the enhanced graphics on. And I have to say, in this case, 
uh, that actually I think this is one of the only cases where I think that the supposedly enhanced graphics is actually worth playing. Now, I don't use it most of the time, but actually what they added was a kind of quite cool 3D cave effect, a, a big lava cave. So it looks like you're playing kind of, yeah, in, in a vast cavern. Um, but it's quite, it's, it's, not o- it's not over the top. It's quite subtle. It sort of fits in with the vibe and the sprites are a little bit more detailed as well. So that's actually uh, that's actually not an insult to the legacy of the game in, in, in this case. But generally you're looking at a black screen with a few uh, reddish brown platforms on it and a number of birds which starts off at a very small number of birds and soon ratchets up to a very large number of birds mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and and a certain amount of slowdown as well. Uh, to animate the birds, artist Jan Hendricks used Edward Muybridge's book Animals in Motion as a reference. Given the limited memory, she had to balance the number of frames to minimise file size while maintaining realistic animation. Uh, Hendrix originally picked grey for the buzzards but chose green instead to optimise the colour palette as the developers had only 16 colours to create the visuals. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's striking, I think, now how few animation frames there are, but actually the drawing on what few frames there are, I think, is incredibly effective. And within the the few frames that they've got, you still get the sense uh, when you combine it with the gravity and the effort it takes to keep your bird aloft. I think it, it does create a good sense of, of movement and uh, yeah, and and weight in these birds. Um, there's not a huge amount of detail in the sprites as, as is indicated there by the technology, but, uh, but I still think it's, you know, it's quite a, it's quite a cool and certainly distinctive looking game. Definitely distinctive. The characters are quite diminutive, so you, you have to peer a little bit to make out their shapes and uh, what they're supposed to represent. Um, Depending on the size of your screen, yeah, obviously. True, yeah. true. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a Game Boy Color version, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, the colors are not as vivid and as bold as uh, those of Robotron. No, that's true. It's it's slightly more muted with with greys and greens. Uh, your your character, your main knight character, is yellowish, and uh, your your colleague slash foe is uh, is light blue. Um, but yes, there's a lot of black and dark green and blue and yeah. grey. Even uh, the and uh, the colors between the different types of uh, enemies are not that instantly and easy to make out. The the bounders, the hunters, and the shadow lords. At mm. least the Bounders and the Hunters look quite similar in color. Mm-hmm. But I have to say it has a very um, unique visual identity all its own. And uh, there's something really interesting about uh, the way the, the, the platforms look with their different shade, shade effects going on. Completely, yeah. I think those those still look cool. And I also love the 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 lava troll hand coming out and grabbing the bird's legs from the from the floor the the way the um the lava platforms or bridge burns away at the the uh, start of stage three or whatever it is um some nice curly flame effects and stuff and of course you know people will look at it and think it is very simplistic now but i still find it quite evocative um and i I, obviously i can't say if that's entirely because i remember it from from when this was what graphics were like but it still it still speaks to me in a in a nice way, and it certainly has, as we said about Robotron, it definitely has an atmosphere of its own. Maybe more so than in Robotron, there's kind of uh, this world building going on. 
it's... definitely a sense of time and place. Yeah, yeah. although what that what that time and place is, <laughs> who, who knows? I mean, yeah. some of the accompanying art um, that we've dug out, like uh, promotional leaflets and uh, some of the box art from the various versions, um, has all sorts of different situations going on where they're uh, you know perched on. Uh, I mean, it's quite literal, but obviously the, this airbrushed art kind of takes the um, takes these ostriches and buzzards and adds sort of cyber legs to them. Um, and they've got these very ornate curly feathers and uh, hordes of uh, aggressive vulture riding knights coming towards you across um, you know, a big curved field of lava with a giant fiery claw coming out of it and all that stuff all that all that art would have uh, fueled one's imagination as a child and frankly still does <laughs> it's one of those games that i used to enjoy just watching i think it really did capture my imagination as a child i don't know if it's that um because the animation is taken from like an actual reference of moving animals yes but it's one of those where yeah i could just sort of sit and just watch the um the attract mode and the little instruction sequence um yeah. maybe that's because i had no 10 p's left i don't know <laughs> but yeah sometimes but yeah, i remember like... there were certain games that i could just watch someone else play and enjoy just the visual spectacle and this one for me at the time realistic isn't the right word to use that's an awful way to, to say it but there was something yeah something captivating about it for sure yeah there's a there's a miniature type of uh level of detail going on mm. like like you're looking at a miniature set of something yeah, um, and I wish I had more of a profound history with the game because I could see myself as a young kid getting lost in that world and uh, that interactive world. In some ways, its uniqueness for for some tastes probably counted against it in in the way that that again it comes back to that those conversations we had about yeah ten p's as as you just mentioned there Dan how many when you're a child in the arcade you had to really consider very carefully where you were going to put your money and if it was in something that you didn't really understand how it worked or what you were trying to do um, or it was just too hard then you would probably you know, walk away and play something that you uh, that was yeah you were probably a bit risk averse with your with your little stack of of ten pences a lot of the time even though. You were also desperate to try all these amazing new games. It was it, that was the balancing act that you had to strike. And the other audiovisual facet, of course, is the sound. Uh, this game has zero music really to speak of. There's one sort of slightly um, randomish sounding jingle at the end of a game, but other than that, this is music free. Hence, you won't hear any music at the start or the end of this podcast, but some in-game sound. Uh, one of the challenges that the developers faced in this case was the limited channels for sound so obviously um they had to prioritize so tim murphy and john kotlerick were the uh, the sound people the sound team a uh, newcomer instructed them to focus on select sounds that he deemed important to reinforcing gameplay he reasoned that the audio would serve as conspicuous hints that players could use to adjust their strategy though newcomer prioritized the wing flap other sound effects like those related to the pterodactyl collisions uh, sorry, the pterodactyl, comma, collisions and hatching eggs were considered important as well. Yeah, so it's one of those things you're just talking about, the hypnotic nature of watching the game. Well, certainly I've found that, again, watching uh, some super plays of Joust that I have been in the lead up to this podcast. And you really can uh, notice because there are so many uh, enemy sprites on screen that you can absolutely see that a lot of sound effects are being sacrificed. Um, one of the interesting things about this game is that the enemies bounce off each other a lot. They often joust directly towards one another and rebound, and that becomes... You end up in with these kind of Frogger-type situations where you're desperately trying to... Uh, 
flap up between between the gaps. Um, and it, it becomes very apparent watching somebody playing this game really well how much they're using the sound um, to uh, particularly to alert them to when the eggs are starting to hatch. So when you whenever you bottom bounce or joust a uh, an enemy a vulture I should say the uh, an egg flies out of them. Uh, of course, this being a Williams game, this, these are worth points, increasingly large numbers of points, up to a thousand, and they bounce around, land on the, uh, eventually come to rest on one of the surfaces on the platform on the floor. Okay, they can fall into the lava, and then you mm. lose those points. Um, but if you leave them for too long, they start to make a, a, a kind of hatchy noise, and if they rehatch, uh, they not only come out with a new knight. I, I don't think too hard about the science behind this. I think na nature, nature is just a wonderful thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, the, they, the eggs rehatch and then I still haven't got my head around entirely. Maybe one of you knows, maybe you don't. Sometimes it's an upgrade. Is it, is it always an upgrade from the one that you killed? So if you if you kill a bounder, does it always hatch into a hunter? Or is yeah, it, as far it as I know, it does. But Okay, right. And if you kill a hunter, it... It Comes returns shadow as a lord. shadow lord. Okay. So that is a really strong incentive. Obviously, you can rack up high scores this way, uh, but as with Robotron, the game is very much about racking up as many lives without dying as possible early on and then <laughs> trying not to burn through yeah. those lives too quickly as you hit the harder stages. We must also mention that uh, when the the new uh, knight hatches, you uh, can actually kill them by just touching them before yes. a vulture comes to scoop them up and uh, put them on their backs. Yeah, absolutely. And um, before I get too deeply into gameplay, which we're coming right to, I uh, just wanted to talk about the sound a little more specifically in the sense that some mm -hmm. of the sound effects, again, we, we talked about in Robotron how they were already, some of them were familiar from uh, earlier Williams games, including earlier Williams coin-ops, um, pinball coin-ops, I should say, pinball games. And also what's interesting is Joust 2 actually brought back some of the old Williams sound effects in 1986 that weren't used in Joust. So some of these effects were familiar um, Some of them now sound, uh, you know, they, they, these are not sampled effects. So these are, you know, chip generated. So when two lances collide, you get this very sort of, you know, chip tuny or not chip tuny, chip soundy kind of poing. And uh, the, I, I think the most striking sound, which is obviously something that newcomer and his team would uh, play around with again was with um with sinistar when they did start using sampled sounds but the pterodactyl shriek still still uh puts the puts the wind up me whenever that when yeah. it comes about um but I again it's, uh, it's intended that way yeah absolutely uh but again it's it's uh it's hard for me to sort of s uh, separate my feelings about the sound of this game into a sort of meaningful critique other than it sounds really cool to me and uh, and but on an important gameplay level it's so cool to read that newcomer and the team were absolutely conscious of the prioritization of, of sound within their limited channels because the game i don't think would have probably lasted as well if they hadn't made those critical design choices if you think that newcomer is an actual is he's not just a programmer he's an He was an actual game designer, board mm. game designer. So it makes sense he thought on that level to make the sound design an actual right. aspect of the, of the play mechanics. Another small thing about the so sound I wanted to mention also is that uh, the spawning of, uh, sound effect uh, is exactly the same as the spawning of, uh, sound effect uh, in uh, Robotron. So we, we talked in Robotron how those sounds sort of became uh, synonymous with, with video 
video games throughout the ages and uh, that's definitely just definitely uh, helped to carry on that le- legacy definitely and you wonder if as well as it being economical to reuse sound effects i also wonder if there was an element of the player will understand this so they reuse a sound effect for a similar purpose in a different yeah. game because it's basically a shorthand of saying, and now you are regenerating and you are safe for a temporary period of time. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Thing. Also similar to a band using like particular samples to sort of make their sound. It's like these absolutely. are the Williams bank of sounds that Complete. you recognise yeah. our machines through. Yeah, absolutely. And it's fun. I've been playing Jeff Minter's Polybias recently and of course he still uses that same bank of sounds as well. Uh, he also brings in lots of other uh, bits and bobs from the history of, of the medium but famously virtually every time he puts out a game even now on the PS4 in 2017 it's mm. got sampled sound from the Williams uh, library and, and it instantly evokes certain feelings uh, just as it did several years ago in TXK and just as it did in Lamatron in 1990 and um, mm-hmm. yeah so good on Jeff keeping keeping that sound sound bank alive <laughs> uh, so yeah the other uh, well another this is a game let's say where there are not that many distinctive elements if you count them up but actually everything that's there is completely vital to the gameplay experience and one of the keys to that is the uh, platforms which are dotted around the screen so newcomer added platforms to the environment after the combat was devised a static game world was chosen over a scrolling world to showcase visual textures applied to the platforms which Mikhail mentioned as we were talking about graphics there these were quite ornate for the time and if uh, if they'd been scrolling they would have had to have been probably simple without uh, textures as they were on say the Atari VCS version that, uh, that, that Dan mentioned the hardware could not easily display the textures while scrolling and the team felt that displaying the whole environment would aid players. Uh, it certainly does. The screen wraps around at the side, I should say. There is a little blind spot. Uh, the last game world element was a lava pit and a hand reaching out to destroy the characters too close to the bottom. Newcomer placed the platforms to optimise Futsen Reuters enemy artificial intelligence AI, which factors attack patterns based partly on platform placements. So yeah, these enemies. The enemies genuinely appear to still think to me certainly the shadow lords um, uh, i still think of them as evil like the bounders may seem quite 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 dumb they try to get above you at the uh, on occasion uh, and they actually seem mostly interested in speeding across the area very fast for the most part yeah. and int- i was very pleased to read like it, it's amazing actually there's there's been essays written on the ai in uh, in patman and the ghosts and obviously patman predates this by a couple of years so it, it shouldn't be surprising but actually the fact that these enemies have it's the fact that they're not tied to a grid they actually they work in the same way as you do mm. that that still surprises and and amuses my brain the fact that they they have the same kind of um the same freedom as you do and they can also come a cropper in the same way as you can from the lava trial and stuff like that occasionally they will just fly into the lava uh and and stuff like that um yeah. so bounders the red ones the, ba- the 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 lowest form of of enemy fly around the environment randomly occasionally reacting to the protagonist is is what the official line is uh hunters seek the player's character in an effort to collide shadow lords which are the blue top end ones fly quickly and closer to the top of the screen Futzenreiter designed them to fly higher when close to the protagonist to increase the shadow lords chances of victory against the player so that's why you know it's it's simple stuff in a way uh, it's about X, Y coordinates. Uh, the Shadow Lord prioritizes Y above whatever your Y coordinate is. But 
in such a, a simple bit of code, uh, a lot of gameplay is spawned. And again, what, watching um, top-level players play this recently on video, you can see that the game, as with Pac-Man, in fact, but on a much more sort of analog feeling level, becomes about the player managing the screen and completely kind of dictating to the enemy AI how the game is going to play out. When I was uh, getting into the game the, the last couple of days, uh, this was something that started to become apparent through, uh, to me. I started just organically um, developing this tactic where if uh, I, I saw three uh, bounders moving very fast from one side of the screen, I knew they were coming out from the other side of the screen. Yeah. I would wait for them and hover, use the technique to just hover at exactly the same height and just kill three in a row, for example. Yeah, it's so satisfying immediately scoop up the eggs before they could even uh, hit the ground. And yeah, that's incredibly satisfying. Yeah, hugely so. Um, the the earlier waves, and, and actually this, you know, this is uh, extrapolated by good players into later waves as well. But as a, uh, a moderate player, and again, I'm just, I'd say I'm just about okay at Joust. I have the, the, the online high score among my few friends who actually w- were interested in downloading Joust <laughs> on the Xbox 360. But my score, my, my top score doesn't even match that of the generic Williams score that's uh, plugged into the into the original arcade machine, which is 109,000. I used to get way more than that back in the day, but I, I haven't been able to match that recently. Um, and certainly on the Atari version, I could get well into the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions, um, which is you know which is decent level. A million points on the arcade machine—that's what's considered when you, you're starting to get okay at the game. Whereas uh, yeah, I'm struggling to get 100,000 currently disappointing but um but yes the 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 sort of chaining bottom bounces and you just know if somebody did make a version of this now you could have some really fun combo multiplier mechanics in this mm. game uh, you could really turbocharge it yeah totally uh, i would love to see them do that it's it's interesting how few incarnations there have been of joust they've only they just re-release it as joust and joust 2 latterly there has been, you you know, you guys will know, every so often Midway or someone would release a game that was called Defender and it would actually be a 3D shoot 'em up but it was, yeah. meant, it was meant to evoke the legacy of the of the, uh, of the the Williams franchises and they'd do it. Um, obviously, we had, we talked about Robotron 64 and yeah. these type of things. There's never been a kind of a joust. I would love to see a joust championship edition. I know that's Namco, but that kind of idea where they took the game and yeah, super super souped it up with um, you know cool visuals and and uh, an amazing modern sort of uh, bells and whistles of, of combo multipliers and all that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, I, I think the ambivalent two-player co-op yes. slash competitive play lends itself to something like that extremely well, and would, yeah, it has a lot of potential there. And actually, when I think of this game now, I think obviously there, there is there has been another game in recent years that was something of a, an indie darling and sleeper hit, a game called Johann Sebastian joust which (laughs) yeah which which i haven't played but i understand although it's it's not based on this joust it has a sort of certain gameplay elements which are sort of redolent of of joust and i also think of i think of things like nidug when i think of joust in that that i think there is there is potentially a modern audience for a game of this nature with especially as you say with this really fascinating uneven co-op come combat combative two-player mode which mm. uh, dan came a cropper in an american arcade like the, this is the amount of sessions i had at mine on my my atari computer where 
it always started out as friendly. It, you know, th- this was yeah. this was so much the fun of the game was, right, we're going to co-op this, we're going to get as far as we can. And of course, you know, you want to stay friends, but it's so easy to get sucked into, uh, into combative play, whether it's through greed or sheer trolling. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a touch of genius there. It's something that uh, Nintendo has been hammering on in, uh, in recent uh, years, actually. And that goes back to Mario Brothers as well, which you could yes. see as, as carrying that concept further. You know, you, it's like two-player competitively, co- cooperative, cooperatively. And it's also the, the same thing where you kill the enemies on the screen to move on to the next screen. And they referenced Mario Brothers when they started to uh, do the new Super Mario Bro- uh, not. Not the new Super Mario Brothers game, but that started with New Super Mario Brothers Wii, where uh, uh, if you've read the What Asks uh, interviews about that, right. they were talking a lot about that idea of that ambivalence of uh, whether you're cooperating or uh, playing competitively. Helping and, and hindering, yeah. Helping and hindering, uh, screwing each other over at crucial moments when the other player doesn't ex- expect it. And you've seen that in yeah a lot of the, the Mario uh, multiplayer games that came after. Super Mario 3D World is another prime example of that where you're also competing for score at the same time while you're trying to get to the levels uh, together. And it's one of those games that when my kids start playing it, it always starts out friendly <laughs> and it's, it ends with crying and uh, oh, good. <laughs> and arguments. <laughs> I was going to say, this is the sort of thing that works beautifully amongst uh, friends in the sense that you can have a lot of fun and you know gaming banter. But it's the sort of thing that doesn't necessarily work as an online concern. I'm thinking about when I went back to play uh, Final Fight, the the online version where you just end up, if you let randoms in, you just end up getting completely trolled by your supposed co-op partner uh, and ganked yeah. to, to high heaven. Um, but as a co-op, as a, 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 sorry, as a couch concern among friends, may, maybe children aren't the... <laughs> They're, because they're prone to get upset, uh, but actually, yeah, man, children yeah, probably they start just taking revenge, shove each, shove each other into uh, into abysses and everything. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, happy memories of uh, co-op com- combative play in uh, in the world of Joust. Did you have a did you have a preferred uh, modus operandi in this? Um, no, I don't think I've played it enough to play. I think my only okay. prevailing memory is that one that I mentioned earlier. So. So another thing, and I, I don't know, I, I assume the two-player mode is more prone to this than even playing it solo, but uh, the, the game is, is a victim of slowdown. Uh, it's not to the point that it becomes uh, unplayable, I wouldn't have said, but it does have a noticeable effect actually kind of calming the game down at points. When processing the graphics, the game gives priority to player characters over the enemies. As a result, enemies react more slowly when the number of on-screen sprites increases. So actually letting the screen fill up with enemies on the later stages gives the player something of an advantage because literally the AI isn't able to make its decisions as as quickly. Uh, so that's curious in itself. It's a bit risk and reward though, isn't it, I suppose, that by accidental, I suppose, but that yeah. you're, you're still building yourself up for failure, but there is so much that if it does go wrong, then... <laughs> Yeah, you're going to die. Yeah, it will have less uh, maneuvering room. Absolutely, and of course, when you start killing them, because you have to ultimately to keep going and continue on and get the points, the game starts to speed up again. So uh, you're really managing things at that point. Uh, Interestingly, I think uh, certainly the versions I've played on uh, on the various consoles in modern times have replicated this. They don't 
you know max out the clock speed because obviously they would be unplayably fast otherwise so they do they do tend to emulate the original uh, the original games uh, slow down and uh, and that sort of thing otherwise i'm sure there are ways of playing it on mame and whatever where you don't do that and so the thing just plays constantly at, at 60 fps or whatever and so you're actually playing a difficult a different and slightly arguably more challenging game at that point Mm. Uh, so we talked about the egg hatch upgrades and that's the whole uh, managing the screen thing certainly again watching people who know what they're doing playing joust uh, they tend to bop 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 a few birds and then go on a little hoovering up egg run so it doesn't it's not economical or safe to bop one and then if you don't get the egg while it's still in the air to drop down and then get one and then go back and get another bird and then get the egg and so on and so forth you should be looking at jousting <laughs> it's just it does it i guess joust is one of the most misleading names <laughs> in the history of yeah. the game it really doesn't it's really it really is like uh, it's it's far more like bopping things in a mario style than it is actually jousting um for the most part well that's the thing right where you had trouble uh you first started playing it because you were actually trying to joust yeah with, uh, exactly with yeah. The yeah and 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 you yeah. can get to a point where you do get a bit more adept with that stuff to the point that it's more about flapping and coming down, estimating the trajectory of the enemy and coming down in an arc so that you land on it just above. So it'll be like your front quarter versus its front quarter, kind of up versus down. But but what you you won't be doing virtually ever is just going like toe-to-toe and then flapping up at the last second. Only at the very early stages does that feel like a a realistic possibility. But again, I'm speaking as a a mediocre player, not somebody who's absolutely expert at this. But again, I come back to watching people who who are and they are kind of – uh, dropping and blopping, I would I would describe it as most for the most part. Maybe it, it should have been called Bird Bop, but uh, <laughs> that doesn't sound as cool as Jazz. I'm sure there was a clone. <laughs> I'm sure there was at least one clone called <laughs> called Bird Bird Bop. I know over on um, Classic Game Room, the uh, the the very popular YouTube channel, he calls it Bird Ass. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I was almost going to bring that up. Yeah, I'm glad you did. Yeah, Bird it's ass. interesting that you mentioned Mario as um. Mm a thing from coming down on the top of enemies because mm. the Mario, the first Mario game, well, other than Donkey Kong, obviously, but Mario Brothers, the original, true. is almost like joust in reverse where you have to have the lower ground to... That's true. And then you kick things, advantage. don't you, yeah. by running yeah, at them, yeah. which is uh, which is a bit like hoovering up the eggs, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say it was definitely an influence. Uh, yeah, more of which later. So another key element of uh, joust is the pterodactyl beware the quotes unbeatable question mark pterodactyl i, I love how that uh, that gives it away already yeah <laughs> absolutely <Unbeatable. laughs> so it has a one pixel open uh, closed mouth you can jab your one pixel lance into its closed mouth and kill it or when it's screaming at you it has a three pixel open mouth which gives you three times the chance of uh, accurately stabbing the pterodactyl in the mouth now for the most part the pterodactyl is a hurry up mechanism and it comes on and swoops from yeah. uh, across the screen to to get you moving to stop you just uh, keeping keeping alive on one screen and because of course what you could do is keep uh, dropping the last bird waiting for it to rehatch dropping it again and so on and so forth so they had to have something to keep the player uh, clean and honest and get the next quarter flowing into the machine so in comes the pterodactyl actually uh, later in the game you can end up with 
well, I say later, some some levels into the game, you can end up with one, more than one pterodactyl on the screen. I don't know what if if the if there's a limit to that. I've never seen more than two. I don't think. I don't know if it's possible to end up mm. with three and four, depending on how long you're lasting. Because there's a pterodactyl wave which starts with a pterodactyl, and then it can add one if you take too long on that wave. But then. If, if it's possible to get more later in the game, I don't know. But I imagine the slowdown would, would put paid to that. Yeah, and, and the thing is the pterodactyl doesn't go away until you kill it or even you need to have uh, grabbed the eggs as well. So if That's you right. killed all, mm. the, uh, all the enemies on the screen, it still won't go until you grabbed all the eggs. Yeah, it's terrifying. Uh, and it swoops from left to right, but it also goes up and down between the levels. There are kind of three distinct uh, layers to the joust screen by default. But as we'll talk about, the, the platforms start to disappear. They start to crumble away a few stages in. And so you end up with a rather more open plan area for a while. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, it, it zooms off to the side. It accelerates in speed. Uh, there's the bit that we mentioned earlier between the wraparound, the horizontal wraparound. There's a blind spot as well, which is uh, which is a place that that many many will come a cropper. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's relentless and it's daunting and uh, it's a, it's an absolutely vital element, I think, to to exactly. the whole experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love these kinds of uh, hurry-up mechanisms, as you call them, like Evil Auto and Berserk. You know, they add an element of imminent threat and uh, ominousness to a game, even though they're basically a mechanism to ensure that players won't hog the machine for too long or, or totally. dawdle around in an area. Yeah. But there's still something really cool about this kind of uh, seemingly unbeatable enemy that starts stalking you if you uh, take your take too much time that's a real tension i mean baron von blubber in bubble bubble uh is, is yeah. one, of, one of the greats and of course the the uh, the ghost one. in spelunky is very much a, an homage to to that at, but at least the pterodactyl the pterodactyl is uh, beatable if you're good enough yeah but only if you're good enough so Newcomer yeah. and Futsenreiter designed the pterodactyl to quickly fly upward at the last moment when approaching a player at the edge of a platform. Uh, now, famously, a bug which allowed the pterodactyl to be easily defeated was discovered after the game was first distributed. Uh, so basically, the, the, the pterodactyl would fly on and uh, if the knight, if you the player knight sat on the, on the, uh, the center ledge, the uh, with you would have to have one enemy still captured at the bottom of the screen by the lava troll, which uh, which I still think is a fantastic feature. The fact that the lava troll is trying to pull this enemy into the into the lava and it's trying to flap away, so cool. Um, but yes, you could just wait for the pterodactyls yeah. to keep flying on the screen, and it would yeah pretty much fly into your lance and kill itself uh, for for large points. So they had to uh, yeah they had to fix fix the rom basically ship ship a new rom out mm -hmm. um, because distributors were complaining that uh, that. Players were sitting on the machine for hours, racking up impossible high scores. <laughs> so the waves, uh, we start with prepare to joust. Buzzard bait, it says, uh, which is just three bounders. And uh, it's funny, actually, going back to this game uh, after, I guess... I guess I've had sort of various, as you tend to do, phases of playing this game. So I played it tons on my Atari. Then I played it a ton when it came out on PlayStation then a few years off, then it came out for for uh, the next-gen machines. Then I got it on Xbox 360 and played it for a while. And then, actually, you know, I haven't played it loads for the last decade or so. Turning it back on again in, in recent times, ahead of this show, I was intimidated even by wave one thinking everything was so fast everything was like so aggressive even wave one three times bounders but now just a few weeks in when i turn when i when i start my first credit of a session up i'm always 
astonished by how slow and easy wave one seems uh even even though only a few weeks ago it seemed really it seemed really harsh and tough second wave gives you offers you a it tells you it's a survival wave and gives you a three thousand point bonus for not dying now three thousand points in the in the long term isn't a huge amount of points but at the start of the game it's a fair chunk towards the 20,000 you need by default for an extra life uh, and this first wave only gives you four times bounder enemies um, but yeah I can still die on that wave if I'm not concentrating <laughs> um, for sure <laughs> next the bridges burn so the lava now comes into play on stage three the game's been pretty friendly up to this point the, the lava troll hasn't arrived yet but you can now fall into off of the screen into hot liquid fiery death um but yeah so can and so can the eggs um and there are six bounders on the screen so you've already doubled the number of enemies from the from the first stage just two stages ago next up the lava troll is now in play and as well as three bounders it ups the ante with three hunters so you've still got six enemies but three of them are the considerably more dangerous gray type then ah the beautiful egg yeah. wave <laughs> uh, so this is um i guess it feels a bit like the brain wave in robotron in that you've got the potential for huge collectee points, but it's even safer than that because the first maybe, I mean, it's really not very long, is it? But it's probably about the first 10, 15 seconds. Nothing happens other than you collect eggs and you get 250, 500, 750, 1,000. So by the time you've collected a fourth egg, you're getting 1,000 points per egg and there are like 12 eggs or something on the screen, maybe 10 eggs, yeah. something like that. But they not only do they start to hatch but they all start to hatch at the same time so if you haven't collected two or three of them uh riderless vultures swoop in which again it's just still such a cool thing i think yeah and i think so too the knights uh, appear from the eggs again don't think too hard about the science the biology uh and <laughs> if the if the birds kind of uh they 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 slow down a bit and they they land and they walk up to these knights but then they instantly um remount them and take off and start behaving like regular enemies uh but it's a cool you know it's a very cool uh way to so it's, it's a stage where yeah you're you're thinking i'm glad i got here i've added a, a bunch of points uh, by this point you're looking to yeah. um head towards your second extra life i think and uh, yeah, it's really it, it's got the same nice feeling of of uh, satisfying collecting as the humans in Robotron, and the numbers appear in the same way, and it's all very uh, it's all very satisfying. I think. Have you ever tried not collecting any yeah, of the eggs and, in the egg? <laughs> <laughs> Probably back in the day. Have you done it recently? <laughs> I meant to try it, and then I completely forgot until just this moment. I completely forgot that it was one of those things that I meant to do. Because would you suddenly then like? I guess it's going to slow things slow down, down an awful lot. Yeah, I think yeah, because you'd have. Yeah, I think yeah. it's about. But, so but there's, there's, if you see all those eggs, you 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 want to grab them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very hard to resist, isn't it? But um, there might be a score advantage in yeah. letting them all hatch, and then if you could kill all twelve, then you're going to get the points for the enemies and the and the eggs, eggs as well, and possibly even more than once. Wow, yeah. and possibly some pterodactyls. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I'd be interested. I I don't I didn't particularly recall watching many egg waves. I think I did see one or two egg waves on the super plays, but um, I think they just. I think they just hoover them up, so I guess they don't feel that long term there's a there's a massive advantage. But yeah, so there's I think on the first egg wave there's seven across the top two platforms, three and four, and then there's about one, two, three, four, five. There's like another. I think there must be something like twelve eggs across the screen. So yeah, surely if you let them all hatch, 
I think you're in, you, you must be in slow down territory at that point. Um, but also quite a lot of fun, I would imagine. I also don't know on that first egg wave whether they automatically all become bounders, hunters and or shadow lords or whether they all... I think they all become just regular bounders. Okay, but then maybe if you kill them and they rehatch, then they upgrade in the in the usual fashion. Yeah, then they yeah. upgrade. Yeah. Okay, and by that point, what what I find is interesting about the egg wave is that the eggs are always in different locations, right? It's kind of r- randomly semi uh, semi. Yeah, they uh, vary. The egg wave starts. Yeah, it's always seven across the top, but they they might be three on one side or four on the other, or whatever. The the trick is that, and this reminds me, maybe most. Of Robotron more than anything else in the game is where you you have you make this this map on your uh, retina where all the eggs are, and you yeah. start to plot plot your uh, your ideal route uh, throughout the level before the the round even starts. So it's this uh, this whole making a quick plan in your head and carry trying to carry it out. And if you have the the controls down well, Pat, you can certainly scoop up a lot before uh, before they start hatching. Yeah, and actually, another game that I think that came a couple of years later and has has been re released since that it makes that it feels like in terms of getting around and hoovering things up is Sega's Flicky. Mm, That's yeah. sort of uh, bouncing in arcs and then and and then gathering things up. And one of my favourite things about Joust to this day. Uh, still remains the fact that it started out as a as a bug and they left it in as a feature effectively, which is where if you uh, approach a platform at a low enough level horizontally that the ostrich doesn't have room enough to extend its legs, it bounces across the surface. And <sighs> I still love that. I still think it yeah. feels great. Uh, and uh, I will do it on the egg wave deliberately to... Uh, maximize the amount of time because otherwise when one of the things we haven't said which is when you're on the ground you're pretty slow and unmaneuverable very very inertia driven like very like early mario again isn't it like when he's slow he's really really slow and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. although it doesn't take long to build up ahead of speed this is a really fast game and and the the enemies will be you know heading down the screen towards you so actually bouncing on your big soft feathered tummy across the platforms is is enjoyable it, it's enjoyable in the same way as it's enjoyable to like do one of those um uh diving jumps across the water in super mario sunshine or something like that yeah like skimming a stone off the water yeah, yeah definitely yeah <laughs> um and yeah so while play t- while play testing the game the team discovered an animation bug they described as a belly flop uh, the the floor the floor allows players to force an ostrich or stork uh, through an otherwise impassable small gap between two adjacent platforms or very close elevation. Because it provided an interesting method to perform a sneak attack on an opponent below the gap, the developers decided to keep the defect rather than fix it. So this is where, yeah, your belly bouncing across the platforms and the middle level, and yeah, there's a tiny little gap. And um, brilliantly, I think the Atari version i had even maintained this because these are the sort of subtleties that home conversions would often miss they wouldn't understand all the subtleties of the behavior of the game or keeping all the bugs or whatever and they would make their own changes based on what they thought was best or what the what the machine could handle but i'm pretty sure i remember doing this on my home version which is yeah squeezing in between the two little platforms on the right hand side of the screen um it's almost Mm -hmm. like a little mini teleport shortcut down onto the people below you and if you're especially if you are playing sort of versus against somebody who doesn't know the game as intimately as you you can uh you can have lots of how the hell did you kill me from there type of moments which is (laughs) which is what you want it also works for eggs i haven't seen that documented anywhere i gave it a search when i spotted it happen on the um right 
it happened on the 360 version and i wondered if it happened in the arcades as well so i went back and checked and yeah eggs can sneak through that gap too if one goes diagonally upwards oh right yeah it can pop through to the other side but um i can't find that documented anywhere so i guess it's not a major thing no no i suppose yeah it's just yeah to do with the 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 size of the egg yeah a pure quirk yeah so yeah score chasing as i say the default high score on the machine is Williams uh, 109,102 poultry by the standards of of good players um interestingly no pun intended <laughs> ouch um I've, i'd fire you but you're a guest uh stored by double a batteries the high score so when the machines unplugged uh, the way that uh, those Williams coin ops used to keep the scores going was to have a set of batteries plugged in which i think is kind of cool <laughs> Uh, my, as I say, my current high score just in recent times on the Xbox 360 version is uh, is a sorry 90,000, 90 and a half thousand. Mikhail, you say that you've got 60,000 odd in a recent play. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, I'm, I'm going to give a lot of excuses. You know, I'm not really that much into Joust. Um, uh, it's fine. I don't it's play fine. very seriously. And, uh, no, still. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, it takes about an hour to get to a million points, I think. Um, yeah, and as I say, I, I definitely used to do better in the day. I, m- I must also say that I definitely enjoyed uh, the last time I played, and as has been the case for uh, all the older arcade games I've been to recently because of being on the Kane Rins podcast and trying to get into the the nitty-gritty of it and trying to figure out how things work. So it's definitely been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I often find, as I say, with these games with a... Uh, a reduced number of elements compared to modern games in some ways is actually it's it's easier to kind of pick apart the uh the sort of the relationship between those elements yeah. and i don't know whether we've actually explained why i, I think you know we've, we've picked out some of the the bits and bobs why uh why joust remains enjoyable um often, often by likening it to other experiences um but i but i absolutely think it does and uh, well we've still got a little time to go so hopefully we can uh, we can be uh, in even more enlightening um talking yeah. talking about high score chasing uh, there is one there is one man uh, really who uh, who holds all the records now it's a guy called Lonnie McDonald there was a guy called John McAllister who in 2010 broke joust world records of 25 years standing but since then Lonnie McDonald has maxed out 132 joust machines across the USA um, and uh, is or was on a mission to be the supreme joust arcade player via multiple records um, he he's uh, he's got a website called joustmaster.com uh, and it's billed as the race to a billion points um the machine clocks at 9999999 so uh, once you do that you you lose all the rest of your lives and put your name in and uh, and in his case you get asked to sign the cabinet with a permanent marker to say that you've done it and uh, and sometimes the machine dies like several hours in or whatever and things like that. So, um, but yeah, he's kind of making a career out of it. He's well into his fifties. He's uh, best part of ten years older than I am. Uh, so he was playing this game back in the day, and he's still playing it now in his fifties at a level that nobody else can, or nobody else certainly is committed to or is uh, is able to um and he seems like he seems like an all right guy like he's he's quite sort of he's quite serious about it all um <laughs> which i suppose you which i suppose you have to be you uh, have to be you have to be yeah abs- otherwise you yeah. don't reach that level that's true he wears uh, he wears gloves while he's playing like um driving gloves type things um 
to stop blistering, which I, which you know, I guess is normal for you know serious professional players of, of these yeah. kinds of games. Mark Mark Alpaker does the same. Yeah, this, uh, Crystal Castles. Uh... High level place. Yeah, well, certainly anything with a trackball, you got, you got to you got to protect yourself. Uh, those things are deadly. Um, and perhaps what's most impressive, and I know we we talk about this stuff on on these shows quite a bit, but it it does it does boggle my mind a bit. I know with modern streaming and so on, there's there's a whole culture now of people who can play and talk at the same time. But seeing Lonnie McDonald play this game at the you know the the, the nine million stage still just sitting there chatting so like he'll be hours and hours and hours into playing he'll have been sitting there for hours barely moving you know it's not good for your body actually this stuff necessarily especially not for a for a guy well into middle age um but he'll still just be he'll be playing this this very very challenging very very demanding high concentration game with an extremely high skill ceiling and he'll just be chatting calmly away to people as they come and talk to him about what he's doing and and all that sort of thing so yeah it's uh, it's it's impressive and as i say i think I, I could be wrong about this because I've played quite a bit of Joust in my time, but I think it's one of those games where you only need to sort of understand, you only need to have a few goes to understand how difficult it is to do what he's doing and then to, to go on YouTube yeah. and watch some of these these plays is just, even if you like any video games, I think it's kind of kind of hypnotic to watch. The experience of playing myself, what, what contrasts so sharply with Robotron is in Robotron the odds seem insurmountable, but in Joust it always seems, it never seems overwhelming. Mm. Uh, may, maybe part of it is that, a part of that is because you, in a way, control part of the difficulty, depending on how skilled you are with the uh, the flapping controls yeah. and uh, ma- managing the inertia. Mm. So you always, there's always this part of you that blames yourself when you when an enemy uh bops you on the head uh like oh you know i should have controlled better there and it's not like this was a very challenging situation i just screwed up myself so that's it has a different kind of pull where that makes the games seem inviting uh, all the time like oh i could do this better you know you, you it, every time you feel like you could do better and not just marginally but you could you feel like you could do much better than what you were doing previously yeah, I feel that even with um, watching McDonald's high score runs, it has this element of well, I could do that. Like some of these, some <laughs> yeah. of these other games that we've played, I know that it, there's um, there's like the strategies of the high level players that are completely different to the way that I would yes. organically play the game. But with yeah. Joust, it just looks like he's just playing it, like no real um, yeah, like I say, totally what McKeel said. It feels accessible to be able to get those scores, even though I'd never make it. So some games on high level play, player makes them look easy. Yes, uh, which is not the case, of course. Mm. They're not actually easy. It's just, yeah, it's the, their mastery. I mean, <clears throat> we've we've talked uh, in the Robotron episode again uh, about um, how even high, uh, super high scoring, high level players of Robotron are losing lives along the way. Yes, it, it, it doesn't feel like they don't. They're not making the game look easy. They're making it look super intense, actually. Mm. But uh, yeah, Jazz is one of those games that uh, makes a, a good player seem seem uh seem effortless yeah uh, it's it's knowing the like i've noticed my skill return to you know to somewhere approaching where it was when i used to play this more in the last few weeks it's just about knowing the timing on the flapping isn't it like it's so much about knowing yeah. the feel of controlling the bird um it's not just a game where you can like you can instantly start a game of robotron and you're 
your inputs are replicated perfectly and reliably by your avatar on the screen. It is eight-way manoeuvring, yeah. it is eight-way shooting. But with Joust, you are a slave to the physics of the game to an extent, and mm. you're constantly fighting against that gravity. It's another game where I know we talked about this on a recent podcasts of a similar game, talking about games of a similar nature, but there is, again, something that I feel like I've missed playing home versions of this. I've played this game on a lot of different joysticks and controllers, but... Um, but hearing the sound of the cabinet being slapped when you're play- pressing that flat button with a you know that um, resilient steel shafted joystick clicking left and right and that that uh, micro switch button being hammered, uh, there's something I think again that that sort of enjoyable kinetic feedback about playing it on one of the original uh, machines compared to playing it emulated or or, or on a home. Uh, conversion which perhaps you're missing out slightly on that part of the experience absolutely a site which i i'm not familiar with called plural site uh, interviewed john newcomer in 2015 uh, they said joust was a huge game when it was released in 1982 and remains a cultural favorite when fans like Lonnie McDonald continue to set records, it must validate some of the decisions you made when creating the game. I know you've had other successes during your career and was wondering if you can shed some light on the process of designing such popular icons. And John Newcomer replied, it does validate, and I'm still surprised that the old arcade classics still get notoriety. I think it had a lot to do with the purity of the design. Either players connected with the idea or not. There wasn't enough memory to hide behind a lot of varied levels and sizzling effects the basic core mechanic had to be addictive the lesson learned is what's popular today in design get the core loop right the basic gameplay has to be so entertaining and addictive that a player will have a compulsion to repeat the pattern over and over and if the controls aren't right there is nothing you can do to save the game true then and true now a word about lonnie and other record holders at no time did anyone in the arcade business expect players could get so good that we'll be seeing scores of a million plus. Joust only planned for 9,999,999 and Lonnie easily wraps that. We didn't put enough zeros on the scores and champion players wrap the score digits. With many games, weird things happen and as it wasn't accounted for. I love these players who got so good. That dedication to learning to be that good is incredibly flattering. It's also a great reminder to never underestimate the skills a human can achieve. <laughs> a sheer determination. Absolutely. And it's good. I think it's good to hear John Newcomer. Obviously, he's still in games design. Like The games he works on now aren't necessarily things that you would know or he would not be obviously as instrumental in their development as he would have been as the main one main designer on a team of eight people or whatever back in 1982 but it's good to know that he certainly identifies as as we do i think uh, those of us who think about what we're doing when we play those who contribute to cane rinse those who listen to it those who make other podcasts that that core gameplay loop is the thing and it always has been the thing and in fact that's why some of these games are as good as timeless despite their their limited uh, primitive visuals and whatever because i can go back to joust and while i might like as i said earlier i might like joust ce which has 
extra things which trigger even more of an endorphin rush, like Pac-Man Championship Editions, you know, insane chain chains of ghosts and things like that. I'm looking for uh, for yeah the equivalent in joust of, of yeah multiple eggs and 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 bells and whistles. As I said earlier, um, I can still feel the pull to keep playing joust even when I'm literally sitting there on the Xbox 360 with I've still got like a hundred games installed on that machine, um, various eras, uh, various levels of graphical extraordinariness and open world games from the last few years and things like that. And yet I'm still going one more go of joust because damn, I can beat that high score. I can, I can bop three ostriches, uh, vultures, I should say in a row, and it will still feel just as good as anything I could do in, in one of these modern games. Well, there's the thing about arcade games and, and the design purity as a newcomer said, it's like there is there are no long menu pauses, no achievement, no no uh, item management, no long intro sequences, no no cutscenes, no no build ups, no tutorial sections. It's just you you hit that start button, you insert your your credit as it were, and you're in the game, and you get a very brief and very distilled, very very uh, concentrated amount of pure action and adrenaline for. A very short time it's super easy to get into when it's done it's done yeah i'm always surprised i don't know if this this strikes you chaps the same way and i know Mikhail, you've certainly you've got a lot of um probably even more legacy machines than i have but obviously both of us uh all, well all three of us pride in our have pride in our sort of games collection and and the fact that we do return to to things from the past and and, mm. and such and it still surprises me that even among my friends list on on the modern consoles i so rarely see people playing anything other than the kind of the latest biggest games mm-hmm. i like i know that if people were looking at what i'm playing they would often see that i'm playing you know joust or whatever uh, or yeah. something along something of that equivalent whereas i just virtually never sort of catch for want of a better term um even people i know who are similarly disposed um yeah. i guess it's the pressure of playing uh, you know the, the the new and shiny and and wanting to be part of the zeitgeist and whatever else, but it but it does surprise me sometimes. Even people don't even seem to return to kind of hot games from like three years ago or five years ago. It's just like I find it bizarre. I I don't stop watching a movie or listening to an album because it's got like three years old. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean this this is going off on a slight tangent, but I'm a huge active uh, uh, advocate for uh, arcade gaming and arcade style games. Also, because it's something that I've been missing, let's say for uh, a certain part of uh, the 2000s. Mm. I w- wasn't playing any of the sort of games, right? And it was it uh, it was games by Treasure and by Cave that brought that kind of love back for me and yes. made me realize what I missed and that actually made is part of what made me into such a collector of older games it's like just going back and tracing back the lineage and mm. and anything anything that I miss uh, might have missed out on on the on the in between that point where i sort of fell out with arcade gaming and where i found it found it back again i'm not necessarily encouraging people to go back to arcade games of the early 80s though they are certainly accessible and uh you, you might call them the most accessible and easily understandable arcade games 
but you know, try try out uh, a, a game by Cave or by GREF or something like that, and just especially if now when uh, when you get older and you have less time to manage, it's uh, you can just fire up an arcade game for half an hour and get everything you uh, can get with larger and bigger games uh, for for consoles and PCs uh, that you. To, to get that sort of satisfaction, you would have to play over a larger amount of time for. Mm. And that's kind of my thing. And there obviously is a market for this stuff because people keep releasing them, you know, so people are buying yeah. them. Um, and, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's just for whatever reason, I haven't got enough of those, the people who buy them on my friends list. Um, <laughs> but uh, but obviously, yeah, it's, it's also the, the, same, the same circles of people that the kind of <clears throat> people I move in are the people who also want to play all the latest stuff with, with the greatest graphics and stuff, as do I as well, by the way, um, yeah. painfully. Yeah, so same here. It's interesting, actually, on the Switch, which currently, because that library isn't fully formed yet at all, uh, because Hamster have done an amazing job of bringing out all these SNK Neo Geo classics from the mid to late 90s on it, I actually have seen people on there playing Neo Geo games. And, I mean, it is such a thrill, I have to say, to have uh, a Switch a portable machine with a, with a gorgeous screen where you can play these beautifully emulated Neo Geo games, uh, and they only cost like six quid each. Uh, so it is great to see some people. I have you know I have actually seen people playing Metal Slug and Garrow and things like that recently on on that system. So um, yeah. circumstances is a lot is a lot to do with it as well, I suppose. I hope it's a lot of people that might not have played those games before. Mm, maybe so. What with Mame and all sorts of other places for people to play them as well. Maybe people play modern stuff on their modern consoles and the retro stuff in other ways that don't necessarily show up online you know like there's so many money, ways yeah. that you can play yes <laughs> yeah but there's so many ways that you could play joust for example that, that's true fair that, point fair point yeah yeah so talking of playing arcade games at home there were a number of conversions but not as many as maybe you might expect for a game like joust uh, certain games from this era were converted to like dozens and dozens of machines um and obviously this Joust has been re-released on, as we say, PlayStation and onwards in emulated form. But the actual conversions came to, uh, as we mentioned earlier, there were three on different Atari systems. Uh, there was an Apple II version, a PC, uh, MS-DOS version, ST, of course, Atari Lynx, as we said, uh, a Mac and an NES version. Uh, unofficial clones, apart from, what was it called? Ostron. Yeah, although I've just had a little look and it was originally called Joust, except with two exclamation marks, which I suppose was there <laughs> hoping to get around copyright. But yeah, they had to those, rename it Ostron at some point. Those weren't on the registered trademark, those exclamation points. So, yeah. I, li- I like that name, though, Ostron. It's good. Uh, unofficial so clones. Sci- sci-fi take on hostages. Yeah. Can I read you the intro text Please. from Ostron? Absolutely. Um, see, because you know there's a, the bit of the sort of like, thy game is over. There's so, I yes. think they're kind of playing on that and going for sort of like some medieval language. Good stuff. So, um, Ostron. Hidden in the folds of time's cloak, there lie tales of the dark nights. But this is an age when myth and reality mingle. For lo, the dark nights are come, and you are the sole remaining keeper of an Ostron, and of the lore <laughs> of the Eldrons. O white knight, prepare thyself, for thou art man's last hope. Beware the blue bearers and their masters, the green chasers. Be afeard of the red knaves, but be most on thy guard against the bedazzling dark knights themselves. Take thy laser lance and mount. 
Wow. Sounds like uh, Ostron had four enemy types in it. Yeah. Based on that on that blurb. Uh, and I, and I'm I'm yeah. a little bit disappointed uh, after hearing Ostrons and Eldrons that uh, the game didn't ind- or the text didn't address you as the White Nitron. What they are. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the actual it actually nicked the um, prepare to joust buzzard bait uh, from the first level, and I presume the other waves copy the text as well. So yeah, it was a pretty blatant copy. Well, as it was back back in the day, yeah. Uh, perhaps the the more uh, well known Spectrum clone was Winged Warlords or Winged Warlords. I'm not sure. Uh, that was uh, that was knocking about. There was a game called Talon, of course, on Apple II, and one called Jouster Three on Amiga. I don't know what happened to Jousters One and two maybe they also existed um i don't think jouster was actually a, a commercially released game i think it was a public domain type affair uh, of which there were many of these kinds of things now let's talk about the nes version our one piece of joust correspondence comes from a blue weasel breath from the forum and uh, blue weasel breath says when i was a little skipper i used to rent nes games on the weekends from the local video stores one such spot was called curtis mathis which I always thought was a mom and pop, as they say in America, but have recently learned it was an electronics company chain that was in decline by the late 80s when I was there. The store adjoined a video rental section and the two shops were internally connected, but the video rental bit may have had a different name. I hadn't started reading game magazines yet, so I used to pick games based on whether the boxes looked cool and whether I'd played them yet. One day I picked up Joust, thinking it looked interesting, but I was too young to have the word Joust in my vocabulary, so I presumed it was made a made-up word like Gallagher, and I'm almost positive I pronounced it Juiced, as if it rhymed with Proust, which I had also never heard of. <laughs> I had not yet seen the game in arcades, so as far as I knew it was an NES original. The game was probably eight or nine years old at the time, and definitely not cutting edge, but I don't recall being disappointed. Rentals in those days practically never had instruction manuals, so I had to figure out the game as I went. The game mechanics were different than anything I'd ever played, but also, in retrospect, very intuitive, because there were only a couple of buttons to try and only a couple of things that the bird rider would do. Once I smacked into the vulture dudes a couple of times, the mechanics became clear, and I remember having an increasingly groovy time with the addictive gameplay as I went along. One recollection I have was trying to figure out how close I was to beating the game, which in hindsight was folly. I saw the wave numbers increasing each time and would think, oh, 10 waves, I'm almost done. Or, ah, there must be only 30 waves, I won. Oh no, wait, here's wave 31. I don't remember how far I actually got, and I can't even provide a rough guess, but since I've always been a fairly middling gamer my whole life, I have to imagine it wasn't anything impressive over the course of a weekend. Looking back, I don't recall if I ever rented Joust again, as I probably figured I'd gotten out out of it all I was going to. I saw the arcade cabinet a couple of years later in a pizza hut or wherever, but I only watched the demo screen, and I think I didn't actually play it. Thinking back, though, it doesn't seem right that the only time I ever played Joust was on a single two-day weekend over 25 years ago, so I looked online just now to see if there was a PC version I might have played and found a screenshot of Joust VGA for DOS that rang a bell. Now I remember. I definitely played that version for a few hours, over a number of days or weeks, a couple of years after I first played the NES version. It seemed like a fine conversion, although I wasn't conversant enough with the mechanics of either the arcade or NES versions to note if anything was off. There certainly were no frills or additions. I respect that choice, but then again, the setting of the game with its fantasy medieval trappings, but also the suggestion of a post-apocalyptic future has always intrigued me, and I would have liked to see some backstory elements introduced in an enhanced version that filled in some of those gaps. The NES manual only says that the game takes place in an alien future in, quotes, hyperspace. 
Overall, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Overall, Joust is an elegantly simple classic game that is addictive on the basis of its clever mechanics and gameplay. And while it might be repetitive for today's gaming market, I'd play it again for a little while even now and probably have a damn good time. Thank you, Blue Weasel Breath. I think you probably would. Uh, and yes, so the NES version was coded in 1983, just a year after the coin came out, and it was coded by a certain Satoru Iwata. His first Famicom title, Iwata would later go on to code Balloon Fight, 1984, of course. Joust wasn't released on the NES until 1987. So not only is Balloon Fight a blatant Joust clone in a sort of Nintendo cutified way, it was converted by the very same man who would go on to become Nintendo president, the sadly missed Iwata-san. And Yeah. yeah, that's such a cool story. Yeah. Yeah. I've mentioned before that I have worked for Nintendo of Europe yes. and uh, I was doing a lot of the localization of, or handling or project managing the localization of the Iwata Asks interviews during that period. And Balloon Fight came up, some interviews centered around uh, New Super Mario Brothers Wii. Right. I'll, I'll go into the, the, the links a little bit later. I found it strange or uh, it has always... Uh, frustrated me a little that that uh you know we know uh, nintendo to really sail their own path and have uh, having set a, set a lot of standards mm. and created a lot of unique experiences but they have de- have definitely have been looking outward oh, in the past absolutely. and co- copying other colleagues concepts and it always frustrated me a little bit that something like Balloon Fight was just touted as something wholly unique by Iwata and without acknowledging that it's uh yeah, very closely resembles Joust. Yes, and certainly some of their other properties. I think uh, Donkey Kong came after Minor 2049er, and I think Metroid came after some quite influential 8-bit computer games from, from the Western market. Sacred Armor of Anteria. Yeah, same that, year, like. same year. So I'm, I'm never yeah. quite sure of the, 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 the provenance on that. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that said, though, Balloon Fight definitely has his own thing oh. going for it. It's, it's yeah. not a full copy, but it definitely sure. copies the mechanics and the core idea of killing all the flying enemies on screen and flapping around uh, to to do so with absolutely platforms in between and i, re- I yeah. really like balloon fight and uh there's uh, there's the, probably i would say the most fun way to play it now is as part of the nes remix uh, packages on on uh, 3ds and, and wii u um yeah. where you can play it in bite-sized chunks um but this is not the balloon fight podcast it is joust and joust got a sequel uh, but it's a curious one because it tanked horrendously and it wasn't available for a long, 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 long time. So Joust 2, Survival of the Fittest, arrived four years after the original Joust, 1986, four and a half years actually. Some of the same team, John Newcomer was uh, still in charge. Um, but uh, it was a distinctly more powerful piece of hardware that it was running on with more colours, sampled sound some key changes to the gameplay included the vertical orientation of the monitor making uh, the play area now tall and thin rather than short and wide you can can uh, transform at any point with a transformation button into a pegasus which is very slow and heavy um, and is probably uh, from my understanding the most misunderstood uh, element of the game in that it feels like as as a as a new player that you just don't want to be the pegasus because it feels way too <laughs> unmaneuverable but the players who are good at this game say that you want to be the pegasus most of the time if you're playing properly interesting i actually really like the transformation transformation mechanic but i used it 
when there were a couple of enemies under me and just drop down on them. Yeah. As in Pegasus form. Yeah, the more you play and, it, the more you realize its value, I think. Uh, so, yes, there's some music this time, some sampled music, rather repetitive sample music. Uh, it has 40 unique stages with, with names and actual art that varies from stage to stage. Uh, there's a golden egg which you can collect, which activates a kind of roulette feature where, where you uh, stand on a button and then you can get a number of rewards, including a super zap, which clears the screen. There's a mechanic call buzzard called deceptus uh, there's a boss type stage where you have to uh, joust various crystals to to kill it um it was it's seemingly incredibly divisive now i've played it a little because it did eventually come to uh, arcade's greatest hits midway collection 2 midway arcade treasures midway arcade origins and it even popped up on that lego dimensions uh, midway pack um, but people seem to really love it or really hate it it was produced in only 500 to 1000 units um, and so it was I, I, I remember when I first played it on um, Midway Collection 2 on probably PS2 I thought it had never been released like I thought it was a game that had never come out but it did it was just it just came out in a time when um, Williams wasn't doing very well coin ops were on a bit of a dip although having said that 1986 was full of some of some of the most amazing games so i don't know but the thing i find about it is that it is if joust is challenging joust 2 is is incredibly difficult i think that the environments themselves feel very hostile already like there's there's not enough not much space to fly around in it seems in many of the stages yeah there's this terrible enemy i think that's the mechanical buzzard this red thing yeah that just deceptus uh, yeah <laughs> It's just awful to, to deal with. Yeah. Um, I saw a video. We mentioned Classic Game Room earlier. Mark, who described it as having a crushing level of difficulty. But despite that, he absolutely loves the game. He like says it's one of his all-time favorite coin-ops. And he was happy as a hog playing this uh, playing this arcade machine of Joust 2 somewhere in America. Um, but then I watched a couple of other videos of, of people talking about it in very disparaging terms. Uh, you know, saying that it, it was no fun at all because it was way too hard, that it arrived far too late for the game it was and, and so on and so forth Dan you got much opinion on Joust 2 um, not especially again I've only played it in these these compilations over the years and only very briefly but um, I can see the point that it would have been like you say by 1986 there was so much other stuff going on in the arcade that yeah. it would have seemed like a step backwards even if you saw it as a new machine I think it would have felt like a game that should have been from like 83 or 84 possibly and, uh, yeah, slightly behind the times Mm. So uh, there were no conversions for this game whatsoever, only those emulated um, ports that, that were mentioned on those compilations. Um, there was a Joust pinball machine, though, which I believe is quite well known and regarded, but I'm not a pinball guy, really. That's really rare as well, actually, isn't it? Is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, it's The two players face each other. It's kind of a, what's the word, yeah. a, um, a take on a cocktail t table type idea, I suppose. Versus pinball. So you're firing balls at each other from either end. Um, so, yes, two-player competitive pinball. Nice. Uh, this I remember this story coming up about 10 years ago. Uh, Midway Games optioned Joust's movie rights to CP Productions in 2007. Michael Sorenzi and Christine Peters of CP Productions planned to expand on a game element for the film's premise. Sorenzi described the script by Mark Gottlieb as Gladiator meets Mad Max, set 25 years in the future. 
And Peters commented that the action-oriented film would appeal to a general audience. The movie was planned as a tentpole movie with a graphic novel by Stephen Elliott Altman as part of the media franchise's release. Midway Games also considered a video game adaptation of the film. Joust's expected release date was set in June 2008 and later pushed back to 2009. The video game company, however, uh, famously Midway, of course, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2009. Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment purchased most of Midway's assets, including Joust, with the intent to develop movie adaptations. Who who thinks we'll ever see the Joust movie? I think you'll see Spy Hunter the movie before <laughs> Joust, if there's ever any of these. <laughs> yeah, so they've, yeah, Warner Brothers have a number of the Midway uh, IPs in in their arsenal now. Obviously, we've had Wreck-It Ralph, which I enjoyed. We've had Pixels, mm. which not many people enjoyed, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> refers to some some Midway uh, IPs. I think I think the 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 ostrich does show up in Wreck-It Ralph, the Night in the Ostrich, very briefly. I don't think they show up in Pixels, but Joust does play a big part in the Ready Player One novel and presumably therefore the forthcoming movie adaptation of that though in order to ob- obtain the copper key an oasis avatar must defeat acerak <laughs> i haven't read this book the demi lich in a best of 3 match of joust so that's good to know yeah there was also some jousting strongly influenced definitely a direct influence on uh, from the video game joust in world of warcraft cataclysm there's a joust quest where uh, players jousted on mounts so that's a recent thing obviously some people out there still remember it going further back Shang Tsung's friendship in MK3 referenced Joust directly as well Uh, there's also been references to it in Robot Chicken which I do know and Code Monkeys which I don't now a few of our faithful Twitter followers do remember Joust enough to give it a little three word review follow us at Kane and Rince let's start with Dan and Craigity Craig Craigity Craig gives us balloon fight origins. Genuine Bragg says bird bum bounce. Andrew Brown says camp the egg. Jess Fuchs says cooperative oops deathmatch. And Freelance Police says satisfying ostrich flying, which scans beautifully. Thank you, everybody. I didn't know we'd get any for Joust, but uh, it seems a few of you have played the mighty buzzard bird battling game. So, Mikhail, you say uh, you're not, like, you know, wildly passionate about Joust, but sum up your feelings towards it, and uh, should people seek it out in some form form or other at this stage? Like you said, and like I've said before, I like to come on here and talk about older arcade games. Joust is not one I had a particular history with. Yeah. And uh, But that was the case for Robotron as well. But Robotron definitely hooked me much more than Joust did. Still... Uh, it has enough going for it that I did enjoy uh, my time playing with it and trying to, to get better uh, better at it uh, for the time I spent with it. And I think more, maybe more than anything, the interesting thing about Joust is that it feels strangely familiar if you play it for the first time, even if you've never played it before, mm-hmm. even, even if you have never played Balloon Fight before. Now, why is that? It's because Shigeru Miyamoto and his uh, team Tezuka, for example, mm. incorporated the, the flapping controls of balloon fight into the underwater levels for mario (laughs) so we've been playing just uh controls somewhat like 20 years afterwards yeah (laughs) after they were uh first uh first conceived and uh, that must be 30 years so this this strange little game about knights on ostriches and storks and buzzards 
that has a bit of a legacy, but not as much as Pac-Man or mm. any of the or Donkey Kong or any of the, those great mascot-driven arcade games. Has had a, a secret, long-lasting legacy under that, and it's not just that. Not just the, the flappy mechanics, which also incidentally uh, have returned in Flappy Bird and its many clones, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. of course. Yeah. So that's another uh, an- another little game that carried on the legacy. Mm-hmm. But uh, we could also we we've mentioned many games already before that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, we've we've mentioned uh, the first Mario Brothers, of course, mm-hmm. which uh, Dan said is the opposite of Jaws. You you knock enemies from un- uh, mm-hmm. under them. And Mario Brothers in itself is one of those single-screen platformers game in which you do the thing to an enemy, and then you do another thing to kill to finish off yes. the enemy to kill him off, which is, of course, very reminiscent of uh, Bubble Bubble that came after it, yeah. and all those other types of single-screen platformers in which you do one thing and do another thing to kill the enemy. And other companies have also mm. Snow Brothers and yeah. Snow Brothers, for example, and many others. Yeah. Uh, Joe jo and Mac returns by uh, Rodland, uh, yeah. Rodland by Jalico, exactly. So uh, I think yeah, it's safe to say that uh, that whole subgenre, uh, that niche genre of arcade games, has a has its origin in uh, in jazz as well, maybe indirectly. Yeah. So yeah, it's despite it's at least in my mind it's an unassuming nature. It's uh, it's a a game with a quite a far reach. Still nice to play. And there's something undoubtedly cool and outlandish which uh, speaks to me about uh, knights in, uh, in armor riding huge birds. Uh, I mean, I find ostriches majestic, uh, both majestic and uh, comical already yeah, in, yeah, in, their, yeah. in their own nature. Amazing so things. I, yeah. I, I, I have a fondness for, uh, for ostriches. And I mean, what's, what's more, more cool than a knight riding an actual ostrich, right? So, yeah, I mean, I have a, lo- I have a fondness for jazz for certain, just not as much as, uh, as other arcade games of the era. And, uh, I mean, if you look at its uh, now well-documented history and its, uh, its legacy, I definitely uh, would recommend people to try out and play it and maybe see uh, if you could get into it. Yeah, I go along with that. Like, I don't have quite the same level of out-and-out enthusiasm for joust as i do for yeah some some other games of the era but i do have a lot of affection for it and i think it's as much as it's the fact that i've played it on and off on various formats over a very long period of time i mean there's there's reasons for that in itself um it's what it represents which is it does represent a time when the the mainstream industry was uh, less afraid of taking chances with settings and scenarios. And it represents a time when, uh, well, obviously when the arcades were massive, but also when game art was more daring and dynamic and things were less kind of focus-tested and, and whatever else. And don't get me wrong, I'm not just being pure rose-tinted spectacles. Everything was better back then because I don't even believe that. Um, there's, in many ways, there's never been a better time to be a, a gamer and there's loads and loads of amazing mm. stuff coming out and happening. But obviously things have kind of, because of the nature of, of marketing and capitalism, things have kind of found their way into their into their niche and their sphere in terms of budgets and um, the, the way in which they're released and things like that. Whereas back then, a guy is at one of the biggest coin-op manufacturers in the world and says, what would be fun? How about this game with ostriches 
bouncing on each other and they just go with it and they make it and they sell yeah. tens of thousands of units and the game lasts in some form or other for decades and is still being re-released uh, in some format uh, 35 years well 34 years later the, the the last count because the lego dimensions was last year um but the fact <laughs> that i can still uh stick it on stick it on my xbox 360 been playing it on and off uh in you know bite-sized chunks to lengthy sessions for the last few weeks still having just as much fun as i did back in the 80s on my atari uh bopping things with my big bird ass and uh all those little touches like bouncing along on your chest without your legs extended and ducking through that hole in the pixel and watching as enemies get dragged into the lava by uh, by the enemies as far as I can say, it's not just nostalgia that makes me enjoy all that stuff. It's the fact that I'm still enjoying the play, enjoying the playing experience of this game with this very, very intricate interface and this really interesting set of interlocking mechanics, which lead to a compelling high score based challenge. Like this is not a game where you will come away saying necessarily you know how much uh, like uh, how many deep emotions you felt or whatever but it is a game that can give you a lot of laughs and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, little bursts of of, uh, of endorphins and, and satisfaction and and as I say actually thinking back to the art of the game and and the setting of the game it did fire off my imagination to an extent and still does to an extent when that lava, lava troll arm comes out the fire I'm still mm. thinking what does it look like? Like I know it doesn't look like anything. It's it's actually a separate. Like it, it doesn't even have an arm. It's just a hand. Um, but somewhere in my head, like a lot of the best things, like your your imagination's filling in the gaps. I think I imagine he looks something like uh, the the lava end boss in uh, X Lay. I was thinking exactly the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with less impressive uh, mode seven graphics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So I don't. I know that realistically, most people, most gamers, although, as I say, these things clearly have a market because they keep releasing them over and over again. I know that that most of you listening to this aren't that interested in playing 35 year old games. Um, but if you fancy a decent purchase, I would recommend Midway Arcade Origins on the Xbox One. If you've got one of those, I know it's not the most popular console around at the moment or on the Xbox 360, you can download it for 15 quid. It's got loads and loads of these games on it. Some of them play, you know, perhaps better than others in, in the modern sense. But Joust is on there, Robotron's on there and some other really cool stuff is on there. So you're sure to find some favorites on there. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And even if you're just interested in the history of the medium, which you probably are because you listen to Kane and Rince, uh, it would be a worthwhile purchase. So check that out. And let's conclude with our, our guest, Dan. Yeah, I think um, as we've sort of been talking over this and as McKeel mentioned, things like Bubble Bubble mm. being sort of not quite direct descendants, but there is some l um, lineage that seems to be there. Mm. And then mm. mentioning the uh, the Mario swimming made me think of Alex Kidd's pedicopter. And that's the same <laughs> kind of mechanic. And if something hits you on the top of the helicopter, you die. And so I yeah. think there's all sorts of games that have been influenced by this. Maybe not in like really direct ways. I was trying to think all the way through of another game where eggs hatch and you have it's time imperative that you collect the eggs or collect whatever they hatch before the end. And I can't think of it, but there's a handful that it's a recent. I'm desperately trying. I've been searching it because I'm thinking of it right now. 
sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I was trying to think of ways to search for it, and I really couldn't Some, figure out a way. Something that springs to mind immediately is Trog. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. There's, it was it was one that came out, and it was a PS Plus game, uh, Vita and PS4, about two years ago. Uh, and it's a single-screen platformer with retro-style graphics, and it's called something like Woe Dave oh, Pix- or something like oh, that. Oh, um, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Is it called but, Yeah, Woe I think Dave? that's a... Me- Whoa, Dave, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely <laughs> um, the one I'm thinking of anyway. Uh, I was thinking of bird, something else. So, again, but... we've each come up with... Well, you two have come up with an example. I can't think of the one that I'm trying to think of. But, um, but yeah, I just think it's a fascinating game. I, I don't necessarily... Um, I was going to say I don't enjoy it. That's not the right way to phrase it. But I think my memories of it are so tied to the Atari 2600 and that stick and the arcade machine mm. and the uh, the sort of tangible feel of being in front of a cabinet right. that it always feels like a pay limitation if I play it on something else. But that's not to say I can't dip in for five or ten minutes and enjoy it. And I think, again, I probably always say this, but from a historical perspective, if you haven't played it before... Again, it's just part of that pantheon that you need to go and experience at some point to, to try and get your head around where all these ideas went and came from. Mm. Yeah, well said. Uh, yeah, and I th- it's particularly interesting. Nikhil's, well, I think between us, actually, we've all identified some interesting uh, some influences that perhaps mm. we hadn't even contemplated before recording began. So, yeah, that's quite cool. Uh, but yes, interesting game, and uh, it's been fun to talk about. How about the uh, the bottom bounce well, Mario, right? Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Bottom, yeah. bottom bouncing is is uh, is absolutely core to uh, everything in gaming. Yeah. Even even <laughs> Telltale's The Walking Dead somehow probably. I don't know about that. Anyway, so it remains for me, Leon, to thank Mikhail, Dan, and Editor Jay, as well as our correspondents, and of course to all of you for listening, as always. And remember, if you've enjoyed this and other shows, please consider heading to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash And if you donate that to minimum of $1 per month or more, if you wish, if enough of you do that, by the end of November... If we hit our target, $3,000 a month, we'll be making twice as many Cane and Rinse podcasts next year and beyond, potentially. So uh, please do think about that. It'll be much appreciated. Uh, and also, of course, I have to tell you that next time in issue 279, the glyphs that keep on giving our Legacy of Cane Soul Reaver podcast. Until then, thy game is over. <laughs>